Hi, I'm Josh. And I'm Lindsay. And this is The Hideaway Podcast, episode 26. Vencis. Another week goes by. Another podcast, more performances of Slumber <laughs> Past. Yes, this is true. We actually added an act into Slumber this last week. We did. We added an act uh, by Joran Dawson, who is our guest this week. Yeah, we sort of followed the first half of the show is a little bit short after the first uh, five performances of it. And Joran does an awesome straps act. And we realized we have some dynamic rigging we can use behind the bar. So uh, we created an act last week and it's now uh, in the first half. Uh, dynamic rigging, for those of you who don't know, is, well, actually, let me see if I can explain it well. Go for this it. This is a test for me, too. So basically, you can have the ability to lower and raise the circus apparatus. So it adds dimension to an act, and you can pull them up, and they can be up higher, and pull them down so they can start their trick on the floor. And for Jordan, we're doing his act over the bar, so he almost looks like Spider-Man when he starts his act, um, because Mike Richter, our jack of all trades and head rigger, he uh, is is the counterweight to Joran during his act. So come see Joran's new straps act in Slumber. Yeah. Also, if you've already seen it once, the ending does change it every does. night. There's two possible endings to the show. So if you've if you've seen one, come back see the other ending and see the new straps act. But you don't have much time. We only have uh, three weekends three left weekend. of shows. Yeah, this is our almost halfway point. Tomorrow's the halfway point. It is. Yeah. And uh, the Saturdays are basically sold out. So if you want to get your tickets, particularly for the weekends, uh, get them soon. Yeah. If you want to get tickets and you're a podcast subscriber, you can use the offer code BLOOD, B-L-O-O-D, at checkout mm-hmm. for 10% off your ticket order. If you're an Australian fan, <laughs> we're headed your way this February. Dun, da, da, da. It's the beginning of our international tour of Slumber, which we are announcing for the very first time on the podcast right now. Breaking news. <laughs> Breaking news. Slumber goes to Adelaide. Yeah, it'll be cool. And I think, you know, the show will definitely evolve and change just because we'll be in a different theater. The House of Yes, if you've seen the show at the House of Yes, is a big part of the, the staging just because it's an immersive theater. Uh, so we'll see what... But the show's like in, in Adelaide. Yeah, and you know, of course, we do have the House of Yes founder, Anya Poznikova, our first guest in the podcast, yeah. uh, in the show. And she obviously has to stay at right. the House of Yes and keep it running <laughs> while, we're, while we're touring. So we'll have a few new cast members. And uh, so we're going to Adelaide for the Adelaide Fringe Festival, which yeah. happens from mid-February to mid-March, which is the Australian summertime, uh, in downtown Adelaide. Very excited. We're, I've only been to Sydney and you've never been. I've never been to Australia. My oh. dad said the reason that we never went to Australia, like on vacation or as a family trip or anything, is because he's 100% certain that once he goes, he's never, never going to come back. back. <laughs> he just will want to stay there. Well, Spencer Novick and uh, Laura New are currently in a show called Blanc de Blanc, which is playing in Perth. And they post photos on their Instagrams all the time. And it just makes me so jealous. Basically, everyone's photos make me jealous of, like, why we're living in New York. Like, if it's in the country, if it's just in a sunny place. If it's in a nicer city. If it's in a nicer city. I'm like, why am I putting myself through Brooklyn? But then we went to Manhattan yesterday for passport photos for Adelaide. You know, it really made me think, like, why am I living in New York? 
It so did. I'm excited to be in a different place for a month. Me too. And we're being presented by uh, an organization called the Royal Croquet Club, which is this uh, super cool venue with multiple little venues in it. It's right going to be on the riverbank in Adelaide. Uh, they've been there for, for a few years already. So, uh, you know, we're really excited to be collaborating with them to bring Slumber Down Under. <laughs> slumber Down Under. It's not bad. Right. Hey, you know, slumber Down Under. Slumber Down Under. Ooh. Um, so, again, you've only got three more weekends to see Slumber while it's in New York City. Yeah. If you are a New York City, New England resident and you want to come see it. Yeah, you can also read more. we got another review called on BQ, B-E-A-T-C-U-E dot com. And she really liked the show, which was nice. She did. Uh, Spencer, I was talking to Spencer Novick on Skype the other night. I mean, our friend is in <laughs> Perth. About the critics. Yeah. And sort of because he had listened to our episode of the podcast. We were just chatting about it. And he was like, you got to remember, critics are just audience members who have laptops. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. Oh, my God. That's so funny. Yeah. Everyone feels entitled to a really strong opinion. I know, but it's it's changed the way that I read reviews because, like, I was reading um, a review of Michael Moore's Trumpland, which is a new documentary he has, and also a review of a restaurant timeout. And I was like, oh, man, like... The amount of, uh, it's more, it's statistically more likely you'll get a negative review than a positive one, but regardless, yeah. it's just a very funny culture. But we talked about reviews last week. If you want to know exactly what we think about reviews, go back an episode, listen to it. I want to talk about this week with you is sort of a scandal happening here scandal, in New York that yes. Michael Riedel uh, of the New York Post broke yesterday. Yeah. So a quick backstory, a show currently in previews on Broadway called Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. It's a really long title. It's based on War and Peace. Yes. So Dave Malloy wrote the music and... Directed by Rachel Chavkin. But so basically the show was originated at an off-Broadway theater company called Ars Nova, which is an amazing company that really supports young emerging artists and has a tiny theater, but it's basically, they, it's like a black box here. So they do so many different things. And it's really cool. And Natasha Pierre was one of the things that they did a few years ago. And it was definitely their biggest budget, their biggest show that they've ever done. And Howard and Janet Kagan are- Who are board members. Who are on, not only board members of Ars Nova, but they are also Broadway producers, uh, decided to take Natasha Pierre and- move it to a commercial run off Broadway. So the first thing they did with it was they found a uh, empty vacant lot by the standard and meatpacking and put up a tent, like not dissimilar from a circus tent. They actually had the team who works, who created the box uh, and queen of the night variety worldwide, help them design the venue and uh, set up running, running that aspect of it. And it played meatpacking for about four to five months. Then they moved it to, uh, a vacant lot in uh, on 45th Street that Spiegel oh, had right. been at in the tent. Right. So at first it went from meatpacking right. to uh, Times Square, where it played for a while, and I and think went to continued Boston. to lose money as far as I as far as I know, and then went to Boston's ART yeah. Theater. So for most nonprofit theaters who have developed a show that then transfers to Broadway, gets credit for the origination of that show and apparently in the Ars Nova contract with the uh, Broadway entity it says that they will always be billed as the Ars Nova production of Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 and in 
the Pippin playbill, which was at ART before it moved to Broadway, says the original production or the production of Pippin at ART, blah, blah, blah. Basically the same thing. So it's not an unheard of request. Apparently when Ars Nova saw the original program, it said that at the top of the Playbill title page. Now, in the one that's handed out at the the Broadway Theater, it just says Ars Nova, along with like 49 other producer names above the title. But I can sort of imagine why this might have happened. Like my guess for why this happened was that they gave that to Ars Nova. And then in raising money, they also said to people who gave the most money, like your names will be first, Mm -hmm. which is a pretty common deal when it comes to listing it. And then they realized probably afterwards oh no, those two things conflict. And our choice is either misbilling Ars Nova or misbilling the person who is footing the bill for the show to happen on Broadway and probably chose the first. Right. The worst about it is that Howard and Janet are like very big board members on the Ars Nova board. They give a lot of money and are big supporters of it. And to take that away from Ars Nova is doing a huge, huge disservice to their off-Broadway company. But, I mean, it's all on Ars Nova. Like, Ars Nova could have handled this all very quietly, I think. Like, I I can't imagine that Howard and Janet are, for any reason, wanting to be the ones pushing this out into the public eye. The Ars Nova artistic director in the Michael Reed article was saying how disappointed he is in them and how awful it is that these poor members would do that. I thought that he would say that, you know on the record to Michael Riedel or to anybody else seems like a real mismanagement of ours, Nova's relationship with their board. Like if you have, if you're concerned that one of your board members and longest running supporters uh, is not following up on a contract, like you should have a very personal relationship with them. We should be able to call them and write them an email and say, Hey, like what's going on? Can we fix this? We don't know. Like they might have, he might've done that. And then it just didn't get anywhere. You know, like from the outside perspective, I agree. It does seem like a very crazy thing to just go right to the post and be talking about it so openly. And it's two board members that clearly support your organization. Um, But at the same time, it's all over billing. I know it's all over billing, which is so stupid. But in Broadway, it's like so important. So important. Yeah. Ego, ego, ego. So and now our Nova staff are like barred from coming to see the show and I don't know. It just seems like a really silly, stupid thing that's all over billing. Yes. Nothing, not, not much to do with us, but we sort of kind of thought it was an interesting, interesting little piece of news happening in the, in the New York theater scene at the moment. On today's podcast, we have Jordan Dawson, who is a member of, a cast member of Slumber. The only male cast member of the Slumber. The only male cast member of Slumber and one of my favorite people. He grew up in San Francisco and so has like that slight west coast vibe to him but then he grew up down the street from a circus facility so started doing circus and then went to enc and we talk about kind of what he went to school for how they how he came out of school with with three different acts which two of which we're using (laughs) and Jordan has had a very cool career in the fact that he doesn't really have any interest in working for a big company like Cirque du Soleil and has really found his place in these smaller companies like a show called La Soiree, which was also in New York like two years ago. And 
a different show by the same company called Club Swizzle is what he currently was doing before he came over to Slumber. But you can hear all about that in our interview. And make sure to come see him in Slumber, either in New York or in Adelaide. But before we get into the interview, if you're a fan of the podcast and you want to support us, please go on iTunes, rate us, leave us a comment, uh, like us on Facebook, on, on Instagram, uh, Twitter, tweet us. Twitter tweet. Twitter tweet us. Uh, That's and, for you, Adam Kukler. <laughs> and uh, for anybody who wants to make any guest suggestions or any comments, our email is hello at hideawaycircus.com. Yes, we love the suggestions. Also, since we're going to be in Adelaide for a month in February, oh, yeah, it would be great to do, to do in Adelaide. Oh, yeah. Give us suggestions and things to do in Australia, people to talk to. Um, yeah, that'd be fun. We could do like a day of suggestions <laughs> yeah we'll do a whole day in australia of podcast listener suggestions <laughs> all righty on with the episode with joran dawson yes here's joran thanks for coming on the podcast joran of course <laughs> so you're from san francisco right i am where did you grow up i grew up in san francisco right down the street from the circus center which is a place where I started doing circus when I was a little kid. Did your parents put you in that? Yeah, I started doing classes at a place called Acro Sports. There was an old high school that was a, had two big gymnasiums, one for women and one for men. And it was torn down because it was an earthquake danger. And they built a gymnastics place in one and a circus school in the other. Huh. So I started in the gymnastics place. And one year they decided they didn't want, didn't want boys there anymore. They went all <laughs> girls. And my parents were like, all right, we'll go to the place next door. And it was Circus Center. And so, I started doing classes there. Lucky you. Did your parents just be like, oh, this kid's got a natural inclination for gymnastics? Or were they just trying to, like, make you do something? I think it was just the fact that a lot of people in the neighborhood went to these gymnastics places. They were, like, really big things in a small neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the kids who were, like, in the neighborhood would do classes there. And it was just kind of a, a thing that happened. Can you describe the San Francisco Circus Center for people who haven't been or, like, know what, know what it is? Yeah, so the Circus Center... It's a, got this massive gymnasium. It's got a few rooms, and it's a circus school. When I started there, it had a full youth circus training program. Master Lu Yi was coaching there, and there were a few other teachers. I started with Sha Hong, who was a younger teacher than Master Lu Yi. There was an intermediate level and an advanced level of the youth circus. And I started in the intermediate level and then got to the advanced level to be with Blue E. So were you there with like Raf and his brothers? Yeah. When I was in the intermediate level, they were in the advanced one. And they, oh. so we were like all in the same place. And then when I, when they left, it kind of like transitioned. When they moved on to Montreal, my group of people who I was with moved up to like their <laughs> no, spot kind of thing. Gone. Yeah. Finally got rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what was uh, what was it like doing that in high school? Like, were your friends like, "Why is this kid off doing circus?" Or would that get super cool? Yeah, my high school was a pretty awesome place that actually had circus classes what? in it that were taught by the person who'd founded Circus Center. Oh, how did what? that? Happen? Wendy Parkman was one of the founders of Circus Center, and she taught at this little high school I went to. It's actually the same high school that Gypsy and Will Underwood went to. No. Oh so they God. kind of, the older teachers at the school knew all about circus. Wow. And were very into it. What are we doing yeah. living in New York? I don't know. <laughs> when you were growing up, was Pickle Family Circus still performing in San Francisco? When I was really little, Pickle Family Circus was performing and kind of serendipitously, my mom took me to see their shows from when I was like, before I remember, when I was like less than a year old. She, they, she was really into it and took me every year. 
Oh to shows that she remembers that I have no idea I was even at. Was there a show um, in your early childhood, maybe it was Pickle, that like really stuck with you and you were like, oh, I want to perform and do this and that that's the thing I love? Yeah, I mean, there's this little spark of something. There's a... A stereotypical one to say would be traces, yeah. which came when Everybody yeah when I was a little kid. I wasn't that little. I would would have been like 14, 15 or something. Yeah. And since I knew all of them, we were like hanging out backstage, and that was the like first time I was like really like hanging out <laughs> in a show. I was like, whoa, this is awesome. And then this you were so in traces. Cool. And then I was in traces just recently, which is pretty Full funny. Full circle. I know, right? We'll With get Brad to that later. still in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, Brad yeah. was one of the original ones. Mm-hmm. Who does Ciro, yeah. right? Brad mm-hmm. Henderson. Yeah. That's his last name? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Traces, what about any other shows? Like, were you seeing Traditional Circus or Cirque du Soleil or... Yeah, when I was a kid, we saw... When Cirque du Soleil would come to town, we'd all go see it together kind of thing. They brought a show pretty much every year. And I really enjoyed those. But from the beginning, I was kind of... Had this thought that I didn't really want to do something like that, that I wanted to do smaller things. I think it was like inspired by the fact that the Pickles had existed, making their own little project. Seven Fingers were making their own thing and had traces going on. And it was just very much like in our little group of friends being like, no, we want to do our own thing, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and then, so high school comes to an end. Where are you on the spectrum of like, I should go to regular college versus apply to circus school? I applied to regular college just to... Appease your parents? Not even my parents. Well, my parents a bit. Appease the school and just, I was going to and just make everyone happy kind of thing, even though I knew I was going to Montreal and, or somewhere, or somewhere else. Where did I apply? I think I got into like Northwestern Mm. or something like that. Yeah. I think it was Northwestern. Yeah. In Chicago. Yeah. And I deferred for a year the first year in case I like hated circus school or something. Yeah. And then, but I never had any intention of doing that. Did from you the only, very beginning. Did you only audition at ENC? I only auditioned at ENC. I was like wow. pretty ignorant to the rest of the... I was like totally naive to the idea that I would recommend to someone going to circus schools now of being like, oh, I'm really into this. I want to get better at this. Choosing a school based on that like throughout the world. Yeah. It was just people from San Francisco had been going to ENC. My friends who had... My best friends had just gone the year before. I was like, that's, that's where, where I want to go. Right. My friends were already living there. I already have a house plan to go there kind of thing. It was like a fairly easy transition to make. What was the audition like for you? We've heard some different stories from different people. Yeah, I could, I went into it being an acrobat from San Francisco that could already tumble really well and had like this whole lineage of San Franciscans going to the school and stuff like that. So I kind of wasn't very intimidated by it, to be honest. I kind of went and each thing they had us do, I could kind of do. And but how was your dance audition? Because I've seen you dance. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that was when Kevin and I had just met, and he was like really good at the dance. I was like, who is this Kevin guy? Beverly. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty bad. My dancing was pretty horrible. It's my favorite part of the show, though, when you dance. Yep, it's pretty amazing. I'm pretty spectacular. <laughs> Thank you, Keone Mar. Yeah, so Keone and Mar taught me everything I know. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag goals. <laughs> Hashtag Keone and Mar. Um, what was your school experience like? How did you pick what you studied? What was it like, uh, that rigorous class schedule for three years? Yeah, I was a generalist at the school. I was a generalist alone, which I think is something that no one else has done, which 
was a ridiculous amount of work in a way. It was like making everyone else was making one act to finish with, and I was making two with a minor also. So I was doing straps and hoop diving. What was like, your minor? Pole. Oh, pole. <laughs> and that's what you're doing. <laughs> and that's what I'm doing now. How funny is that? Yeah. I know. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the school. We were like pushed really hard. I had so many hours with all these coaches because I was doing two things on my own. At the same time, I was like kind of split between the creative process of each act mm. where everyone else was kind of putting all their focus into one thing. I was like, God, these two entirely different products to finish with. I have a feeling that I would have appreciated having more time performing in Montreal and more time creating as a group. There's like very little idea of creating as a group in Montreal that you do like one project a year that has a lot of pressure on it to be good and get good grades kind of thing. But it's not at all in the realm of like creating a company or creating shows necessarily. I do find it interesting that like more groups out of ENC don't form companies you do. Yeah, but it seems like a, a, do, prime, yeah. a prime way of just having something right when you graduate. But I guess most of you guys get booked right away. Yeah, I think so much of ENC, they kind of put this goal in your head that working with the act that you finish the school with mm-hmm. is, is the goal. success. Yeah. Well, Which success, is, it's success for ENC because then... Yeah. Those people who go and do that are representatives of absolutely, ENC. absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think that's very much looking at it as an institution less than an art school, which it claims to be, but has very much its own motives in that way. Yeah, I think all universities yeah. do. Like when we went yeah, to Columbia, definitely. we we very much went in thinking like the the main goal of it is to um, you know prepare us for producing. Um, in general, when I think actually the entrepreneurship school prepared us for producing and yeah. the, the producing school prepared us for like general paperwork. management and paperwork mm. and admin. Yeah. yeah. And like being working for someone else. Yeah. yeah. Right. Being like in a big yeah. production company. Yeah. Kind of thing. So yeah. Higher education is a funny thing, but when you finished school, uh, did you get work immediately? Were you looking for something? How did that go? I did. I had two choices when I was finishing the school in Montreal. I had choice of working for Circa Waz's show ID or doing Vague de Cirque tour. So we had the other option was touring with this tent show where there were going to be eight of us touring for like five months, setting up the tent. The first like few months of it was this insane schedule of, you can tell which one I chose. I chose to do this one because I actually know how the story plays out from this one. <laughs> the first, like, which one did you choose? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't choose ID. I chose to do this other one. And we toured for, what was it? We were doing like four, five days a week of shows, then tearing the show down the next day, driving, setting the show, setting the tent up the next day, doing another five days of shows. That adds up to seven days, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> it was insane. It was insane. It was awesome. Did you drive around it was, Canada? Or yeah. Or? Canada, like Eastern Canada. Okay. These like huge drives. Eastern Canada is just massive. We're driving like 12 hours to set up the tent the next place oh. all around the coast. There was beautiful places, but it was so much work. And it's like, also a, a very old school kind of way to do circus. What was that like doing this, you know, you do everything kind of model? It was really, really hard. I think we weren't prepared for it. We'd like, some of us who did it all together, we, it was all graduates 
from that year from ENC and a French clown <laughs> who was older and very cynical about the whole thing in a hilarious <laughs> way and like kept telling us when every time we'd go to bed that he was going to die in the night and it was like oh he would like say goodbye to us all every time we go to bed. He was hilarious. He's great. He's this ridiculous clown who Is could like luckily alive? he's still alive. Luckily he's he knew it. how to fix everything that was on the tour. We had all these caravans. We were pulling tiny houses. They were oh, like nice. amazing. They all five were different colors. They were totally beautiful. We There's made this... a tiny house show on HGTV that I watch. Oh, really? Tiny house. Maybe hunters. I was on it. <laughs> Maybe I didn't know I was being secretly filmed. I think you would because it's like you you buy your like you pick, you like see three tiny houses yeah. and then you pick which one and then that's the one you buy and live in. We had to like delay the tour for a week because they hadn't finished building them all and buying all the trucks to pull them and stuff. It was a complete Whoa. mess. So was it a brand new company and show the first time they did it? No, you, you would think, but it wasn't at all. They're very lovely, very disorganized, and that's just how they roll. Seems to be like a slightly common theme with circus people, a slight disorganization. It, it does indeed. It does indeed. When people kind of... Not gonna say those. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll jump in there. I think yeah. the, the reason for the general disorganization is just the lack of um, lack of systems for people to like kind of produce and yeah. general manage in. Like mm. in theater or film and TV, you like work the system where you're like your assistant and then you know general manager and then maybe yeah. the producer and you like go up seeing all these systems and then implement them yeah. when you're at the top. Well, for circus, it's very much like, all right, I want to put a show together. Let's figure it out. Let's figure it out. It's and true. figuring it out on the fly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's this... also, because of because there's so much theater, there's so many people that are used to doing theater in a specific way. Mm-hmm. And then it's even like with insurance, getting insurance for theater is so much easier than for circus. For circus, yeah. Um, I mean, for like all sides of circus, it's kind of like that. For like producing, for being a circus artist, there's no guidebook to how to no. move your like career forward. And what would you, yeah, there's a whole wall of books on like, yeah. there's no how to be an actor. like progression of what you should do or something. Like if you're, the goals are much more clear in other industries where it's like, yeah. oh, if you want to work on Broadway, you do this. Where yeah. it's yeah. like in circus, it's like, oh, you want to like create your own show or you want to perform in a show or you want to do both at the same time. There's no particular plan that's the right way to do it, which is great. Yeah. Also, which is what leads I mean, all that's exciting to me, right? Because from theater, it's very like you do structure, yeah. structured, and then this is like, well, let's just figure it out. Mm-hmm. Although it does cause me slight anxiety sometimes, but that's another point. <laughs> Wait, I was going to ask you though. about yeah. the, the, your hoop diving act. Yeah. Because you have a structure that's weird. Mm-hmm. It's very weird. <laughs> How do you explain it's, it? So I had the struggle at school or the challenge at school of coming up with making a solo hoop diving act because I was <laughs> finishing. I knew at the end of the school I was going to be presenting an act by myself. Right. So I went through this whole progression of different things that I could do solo. I had this act for a while that I really like and I'm looking forward to doing again where I had a locker and I was playing this nerd character. I had this locker like from a locker room that I'd pulled out and a magnetic hoop that attached to it. And I started inside the locker as like a nerd who'd been like beat up or something and like crawled out and had this little notebook that was like a guide to hoop diving. <laughs> it was awesome. It worked really well. The one time I presented it at the school, did a few other little cabaret kind of things, but it went off like so well. I was so nervous about doing it because it was this like clowning act kind of thing. And so like the notebook had all the rules to hoop diving and I had chalk and was writing out on the ground. How, like my whole path of like where to go and then have the lo- the hoop on the locker. It's funny. I feel like you, really... could, you could play both a nerd and also the bully who shoves 
Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow <laughs> just switching off in the middle. Yeah. yeah. Well, so okay. Funny. So funny thing is, so mm. all of my girlfriends came to see Slumber yeah. and saw you on stage, and they're like, "Oh my god, he looks like Calvin Harris. He's so hot." And then when you came off stage with your little like Hawaiian shirt buttoned up and your glasses, they're like, "Is that the same guy?" It's <laughs> like, yeah. Like, yep. That's him. <laughs> there he is. Like, oh, you looked a little different on stage. <laughs> so what did you do after, um, it's called Cirque, Cirque Vogue? Cirque? Vague de Cirque. Vague de Cirque. Yeah. What did you do after that? I went, I finished that, and for the first time had a moment that a re, that would reoccur again of like, oh, now I don't have anything going on. This finished, like, okay, what's what's next? I don't really know what's next. So I go back to Montreal and just like, train? Or, and it was only a few weeks before, maybe even less than that actually, that I got a call from Soap and went over to Germany and did the first kind of international gig where I would arrive at a theater and be like, hey, I'm the guy you hired for the act thing. And like walk into the theater and become friends with all of them and do a run of the show for a few months in Dusseldorf. You did Straps, presumably. Yeah. So, so was, for those who haven't seen it, is a show that has been around a while. And it's been around for a very long time. But the theme yeah. is basically bathtubs, right? Bathtubs and bubbles. All sorts of bathtubs. Every <laughs> every act happens in, in a bathtub. I know. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> um, yeah, soap was a soap was really fun. It was the first time I worked with a company that wasn't all people that I'd known before and knew all of their life paths kind of thing and worked yeah. with a whole variety of different people. How was Germany? Germany was all right. Germany was cold and wet. So you did in the winter. And it was winter. Yep, <laughs> it was November, December. I had a good time doing it. I really enjoyed being there and getting to do this act over and over that wasn't my... It was the first time I did someone else's act. Mm. An act that was like, here's a video, try this. Make it yours-ish, but mostly do it our way. Yeah. Kind of thing. And right. it's not my... F I don't really... That's not my favorite thing to do. I'd much prefer to, like, create and make things. But it was it's definitely something that you end up doing if you want to work all the time. Yeah. So it was the first time I ever did anything like that. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about this, like, the nebulous time where you're like, okay, even if you are on a gig and you're like, shit, I got, like, a month to fill or two months to fill or nothing for the next six months... What do you do when, when that happens? Do you just trust in yourself that something will come through? Or sort of what is that challenge like emotionally? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's a really tricky thing to figure out as a circus performer kind of thing. Most people end up basing themselves somewhere where they can go back and train and be kind of part of the circus community in some particular place. Lots of people who've gone through Montreal choose Montreal as that place. I moved back to San Francisco. I mean, moved is a loose word. We don't really have any stuff back to San Francisco after finishing the school and have kind of based myself out of there. Cause I find that if I don't do that, I just don't go back to San Francisco at all and see my parents and spend some time there where I grew up and stuff. So I end up going back there and try to create things. One of the times when I had a little gap of time, Brad Henderson and I, decided we bought the pole that we're using in slumber right now and made a pole act we both knew we were going to be back for that amount of time and we worked every day and made a pole act that we presented we were going to do it every weekend in like this like kind of club night circus thing mm -hmm. for the whole summer and then i ended up going to do less worry after we did it once <laughs> <laughs> we're like oh we got a video of it all right i'm out of here sorry that's all um, i need yeah one good video exactly <laughs> 
Um, let's talk about Lost Warrior for a little bit. Yeah. That's one of my favorite shows, period. Um, and you were doing, again, a Straps, a Straps bathtub number in it. Exactly. It wasn't um, yours. It wasn't mine either. How was, how was Lost Soiree? How does that show sort of compare to other kinds of things you've, you've been on? Lost Soiree was great. It was really a pleasure to begin working with them. Another thing where I was called really last minute to come replace someone, I think it was within like three days of having... Got them gotten in touch with me that I was in the show in New York. For, uh, in, okay, so because yeah. I saw another guy do the bathtub act, and then I saw you do Stephen it. Stephen Williams did it for the first half of the run. It's okay. David O'Meara's act, right? And he was doing a show in Vegas, so we were replacing. Josh was lie that I booked him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. That's so funny. So pretty much, you're why I was in La Soirée. <laughs> yeah, pretty. <laughs> <laughs> it's a loose connection, but yeah, La Soirée really like was so welcoming when I arrived and we're a really great bunch of people. Yeah. It was really a pleasure to work with all of them and a really first little window into this incredible world of the Australian circus community. Yeah. That was it's a so, really crazy world. Yeah. So welcoming and so kind and such a family. Yeah. I think that, that's one of the coolest parts to me about Lost Way. I've no, obviously I've never done it, but I've seen four different iterations of it in London and in New York. And it's got more than any other show like it, like a real sense of community within like the cast and the team. Who yeah, do it. it really does. It really does. When we were working on, when I was doing La Soirée here, Brett Haylock was sitting in the dressing room Brett's with some. Brett's the producer. Yeah, Brett is the producer of La Soirée, and he was had this uh, kind of blueprint of a stage, and started asking me some questions about where some poles should be on this stage, and I was like, "What do you? What is that? What, what show is that for?" And he was like, oh, it's for this new project we're doing at the Sydney Opera House next year. You should you should totally be in it. Do you want to be in it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. As is Club like, Swizzle. Okay, great. And he was like, yeah, that's what turned out to be Club Swizzle. Didn't have a name for it yet. Oh, cool. And So what's what, the premise of Club Swizzle? Because that, other than Slumber, is the most recent thing you're working on and what you're doing uh, exactly. between Slumber uh, iterations. Sl- yeah, Slumber and Slumber. <laughs> slumber, Swizzle, Slumber. Swizzle, Slumber, Swizzle, Slumber. <laughs> Club Swizzle is this is a show that's set on a bar. There's a black butt wooden bar that's this beautiful kind of vintage but timeless bar that goes through the middle of a room. There's audience seated on both sides and when they come in, there's no cabaret tables right up near the bar and there's a hole in the middle of the bar that's on hydraulics. It's down and there's bartenders serving drinks out of the middle of the bar. So when people come in the room, they're not really sure where the stage is. Mm. There's a whole thing that comes down to hold drinks right above the bar too, so you can't quite imagine how there would be a show on the bar. There's no stage when they come in. So they kind of just mingle in the room and there's four of us boys called the Swizzle Boys who are in character hanging out with the people and kind of arranging them, but they don't quite know what we're doing. So we're arranging them in the room and then we seat people who we choose to be in the front row. So we pick like the most energetic group of people to sit Mm -hmm. in the front and swoop in cabaret tables at the same time as there's this big overture with the four person band playing and kind of begin the show all of a sudden and set up the show. The stage cool. and the venue all in the first few minutes of the show. And that's in a Spiegel yeah. tent? It's been in a Spiegel tent. In Brisbane last year, we did it in Spiegel tent. It premiered at Sydney Opera House, where we did it for three months. And now we're taking it back. It's pretty versatile in terms of where it can go. So is it just the, the stage is just mobile? Like you just can yeah. put it wherever? It goes into a shipping container and goes wherever we go. That's, that's cool. awesome. Yeah. And then what act are you doing in Swizzle? In Swizzle, the four of us do six acts. Pretty Just much. The four of you? No, there's there's oh, a four Lori. person band. Yeah, there's a four person band. Four of us boys. Murray Hill, who's an incredible MC from here in New, New York, York City. New York, yeah. yeah, he's gonna come to Slumber in a few days, I think. Awesome. And 
there's always a cabaret singer spot that changes. There's Lori Hagen, who does a reverse strip. And there's always a girl who does some kind of aerial thing that's also become an interchangeable role a bit. But the four of us boys, we open the show with this acrobatic cocktail act. Murray does a little intro and he calls us out kind of like, boys, get out here. <laughs> Entertain these people. It's Murray Hills Club is the premise of the whole night. Yeah. And we make a cocktail with flipping over each other and shaking the shaker and flipping the shaker and it's the most acrobatic cocktail in town kind of thing that we say <laughs> and then like pour the cocktail and another act happens and we come out and do a acrobatic act with the chair flipping around the room kind of thing jumping on the bar and going over the chair and then at the end of the first half we do a hoop duck no we do a, a teeterboard act we did a teeterboard act in the last few seasons it's in the middle of changing what we might be doing we did a teeterboard act on that tiny little stage <laughs> and then we have so many acts in the show. It's like the entire time we're moving. At the beginning of the second half, we do a pole act. Mm. And the pole's on a little podium stage. There's a kind of cabaret table with the pole coming out the middle of it. Okay. That's right on the end of the bar, like a dot of an eye. Okay. So yeah. it's a little jump over to that stage and then climb up the pole. And then later in the show, we do... I think that's all we do. In the, at the end, we do a hoop diving act, which is kind of the big finale with a swinging hoop. At school in Montreal, I did a little bit of training with a swinging hoop as kind of an idea for another project. Mm -hmm. And then when we got into the rehearsal room in Melbourne and we were creating Swizzle, the bar is so small, it's six meters by one meter. So putting the hoops in the middle of the stage left three meters on each side. It wasn't enough room to run uh, and jump oh. and like land and everything. It just was impossible. It, yeah, so we used this idea that I'd had years before and doing it in this show and so once we just swung it the first day it was like yes this is exactly what we have to do because the hoop is doing all the movement for us pretty much right. you stay in one spot the hoop swings by you and gives this impression that you've run and done this amazing feat kind of thing <laughs> cool. i can also secret we can change the height of every trick because there's someone with a line so oh. if someone's not oh. able to do a particular <laughs> trick at the same height each the they can just guy work. cables are rigor. This guy's name is Guy Cable. It's a rigor. It's amazing. It's amazing. No, his name is Guy Cable. He's incredible. He's an actor and rigor. Has to fly away to like film web specials in the middle of the show. Oh the rigor is the most successful guy in the show. <laughs> guy. Yeah. Guy. Guy. Guy Cable. Cable. In a way, it's the same for us. I mean, Mike Richter, our rigor has more performing hours than I think. Yeah. Basically, our entire. That's so, funny. That's so Maybe funny. not you and Olga, but. Definitely. Yeah. I don't know. The combination of doing Ringling for the many years he's done. Yeah. yeah. That adds up hours. Definitely. Okay. Definitely. Um. He really is the jack of all trades on our <laughs> show. Um, Swizzle sounds amazing. I want to see that. Yeah, Swizzle's really fun. You guys will have to come over to the other side of the world earlier. I know. It's not that much <laughs> earlier. It's true. Something something else I wanted to ask you about, since you've done it more than the average person, person is act creation. The average, of, person. The average person. The average person. <laughs> more than the average person. <laughs> Persians do a lot of act creation. Uh, <laughs> I can't speak to that, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> the average circus performer. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it's like to create a circus act, sort of where how the idea starts, adding in the tricks, just the various different elements and times you've done it? Yeah, I guess it really depends on what the context is, whether it's such an open playing field. It's such a, like, you can do anything. You can, if you have this little talent or something and a way to show it and a way to present it in a way that's entertaining, that's an act. Like, anything can really be an act. And I guess it really depends on the context. Like when we created the pole act for Slumber, you came in with the music 
and the general goal of the act like a we start here we end here your character goes through this kind of thing yeah and so that was up to me to put tricks in there that kind of fit in a sequence of something that generally something that's impressive at the very beginning some tricks in between that build up to some to a few things that are quite impressive at the end Mm -hmm. with like finding tricks that are the right speed and the right kind of dynamic to fit the music yeah and then the other side of things is when you go into it being like i need to make an act without when you're working creating something for yourself yeah with no direction it's all to you exactly and being like well all right where do we start first of all since i do a few different things what do i what am i gonna do (laughs) what what, why am i making an act do i want to sell it in for like cabaret kind of things or is it for a particular show like a any kind of event or something like depends on what it is and going from there finding some kind of music that inspires and moving with that do you have any advice you would give to somebody who is in the process of maybe creating their first act or their their second act of what you think works well my advice in something like that would be to do the tricks you can already do (laughs) do the tricks in the act that you can already do well and spend time on the creative side rather than on the training side that's not to say that you shouldn't train shouldn't learn impressive things and shouldn't push it in that sense but you should definitely have just as much creativity and curiosity for the other side of things to the making it entertaining and not just assuming that because you've learned this trick that was a personal goal for a long time that that's the epitome of entertainment that people want to watch <laughs> right right well that's speaking very as, well said yeah because mm-hmm. i mean now after however many years three years of like seeing everything i can tell different sequences of tricks and you know i can sort of see it now i'm like oh that wasn't a very good Mm. trick but my mom and dad are like that was amazing you know i'm like oh jordan didn't get to spin and they're like oh i didn't even notice it's really it's really much harder trick (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) Yeah. the spin i was like you put me back down i want to spin it's so much easier with the spin (laughs) it's really not like what you do but how you do it yes like at a certain level i mean if you're not doing anything really then right. you have to do something you have to do things right. that are impressive if you're doing like a forward but, roll then you're, you should probably yeah. keep training but then at the same time there's plenty of ways to make a forward roll <laughs> just true. as fun as watching someone do a That's triple backflip that yeah. people don't quite understand what they even just saw yes well it's interesting yeah. it's this like emotional bridge with circus of like the athletic side of it and the performance mm-hmm. side of it where um it's it's a funny balance for everybody like you and I, I think it's the most evident with jugglers even more than it is acrobats of the balance between like how much of this is going to be uh for the performance sake of it and how much of it's going to be like the trick virtuosity element but when i saw Las soiree in new york maybe you were at the same time they had this juggler who did it to queen uh yeah to queen. mario <laughs> queen of the circus, mario yeah. of the circus. <laughs> and that was awesome because it was Technique wise, I would say it was sort of mid range technique, like not newbie stuff, but it's also not like the most virtuosic. But because it's to music that everybody loves and his character is super clear and there are these great jokes in it, it hits like super well and gets like an amazing, amazing reception. Each and every time. Each and every time. Mario's work does lots of street shows and stuff and has such a great connection with the audience. Talk about hours performed. Yeah. He's one of those people who. You can tell. done, Done his hours. So this is the first time you've worked with a new, a totally, totally new circus company? It's, yeah, I think so. 
Yeah. Tell us how great it is. It's so great. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like it's really well organized and works really well compared to other companies that have been running for a really long time and put on a lot of shows and it literally, done when this you told us that time. the other day, I yeah. literally made my life because in my head I was like, Oh my god, I'm forgetting all of these things. I keep forgetting to dry Joran's pants. Yeah. But at least you're remembering that you forgot them. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, because I clean all of the blood yeah. every night. Lindsay is our costume, costume supervisor, cleaner, cleaner. <laughs> scrubber, blood scrubber. We could post a photo of you like on your knees cleaning the blood out. Of yeah. I was like, where is that going? <laughs> uh, yeah. So what, oh, sorry, you go. So one of the things about Slumber that I'm okay to reveal the podcast because I think I think most of the podcast listeners uh, only a fraction of them have the chance to see it in New York. Um, is the amount of blood you get on you during this show covered in blood? I'd say covered you in blood. Than anybody else the just first, gets drenched. The first moment the blood comes in, this is probably a little more information than anyone wants. But the first moment the blood goes, it goes squirting. Then the second thing I feel is just the fact that I'm all of a sudden sitting in a puddle of blood <laughs> on that chair, just like sitting, and this, this like cold liquid comes. I'm like, oh yeah, that's great. That's just like that's just perfect. I was really looking forward to that point in my day when I get to sit in a puddle of blood. It's, it's perfect. How many people who are actually killed have that same sensation? They're like, oh, this is the worst oh, part of this is that I'm sitting in blood. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but every time you get killed, it's so funny because either the audience is like, yes, he's dead, or they're like. No. Why did you kill him, you bitch? <laughs> yeah. And then, like, it's always like, ah! It kind of comes out of nowhere. And then when you can, like, have it squirt. The, the context of that is especially pertinent in this particular yeah. moment in the world with yeah. me being this kind of rapey, bro-y guy. Yeah. And... And all of the, the Donald Trump... Yeah, the recent, current recent. context yeah. of all those things is pertinent. And people keep telling me afterwards how, like... They're either they're like a bit shocked and don't like my character and stuff like that. And I'm like, I totally understand. Yeah, I so wouldn't I, either. I'm okay to give a little bit more about this uh, yeah. in the podcast. So Jor- basically what happens to Joran in this scene is that he, when we first see him, he's this like pretty sexy guy who works at the nightclub or is just there and you're into him and all the girls are sort of fawning over him. And then eventually he gets one of the characters alone and... Um, does a, a a lighter version of sexually assaulting her um, before he gets murdered, but the the sexual assault sort of uh, unpleasant grabbiness of your character prior to the Donald Trump news coming out was getting like a lot of woos. Like people yeah. were like, "Oh yeah, like, yeah. 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 yeah." And then the, the week, which was like between week one and week two of doing it, that Donald Trump you know sexual accusations came out. It quickly very went to booze. Absolutely. And it's the first thing that comes to people's mind. You know, yeah. It's like quite pertinent on it. Everyone's heard that tape a million times. Like, yeah. I don't think there's a person in the world who hasn't heard that. I know. Well, even like one of the most recent reviews, I think it was in BQ, she was like talking about the undercurrent feminism of the show, yeah. which I was mm-hmm. really happy that she brought up because when we were writing the show, it was something that I was like really interested by with mm. having all women and then just one guy and kind of like being like strong and like killing all your friends is not like you know but in a way it's like you're I'm so empowered that I murdered all my friends maybe I'll get that people shouldn't get that empowered no not that empowered but, but empowered like the, just like the using this kind of like silly storyline of like you know gore and then but also having this like underlying idea of being a strong woman yeah is was cool to me and I'm glad that she finally saw it it's definitely a thing that I've been involved in a lot of discussions on 
in the circus world about femini- feminism and kind of misogyny, really, about like how circus acts are designed. We've had like a lot of criticism on certain projects and other like praise and others about how women are portrayed in the circus industry because mm-hmm. traditionally and like in traditional circus it was not very well i don't think they're like the they men do all these group acts or something and then this woman coming in covered in bedazzled leotard comes right. out and does something pretty and kind of thoughtless Mm-hmm. And yeah. goes back out right afterwards without I mean, even. I'll, I'll challenge you on that. Yeah. I think actually that level, that generation of like circus is more like like nineteen thirties to nineteen seventies maybe, mm. because the highest paid circus performer of all time was this woman Lillian Leetsoul. Yeah, right. who everybody should read the book called Queen of the Air: True Love, True a True Story of Love and Tragedy. And she, by today's standards, was making something like two or $300,000 a week in Ringling doing wow. her act. Amazing. And she did yeah. a solo straps number, and three different presidents would like come see her act and then like sit backstage. Wow, with her. amazing. But um, at the time, the impressive thing was like, look how strong this mm. woman was. And for a window, there was but probably a 20-year window, there was really a feature of like, like cir- women in circus also matching like the beginning of um, when when was this? When was nineteen oh five ish? Wow. Yeah. Um, so the beginning of um, uh, the second wave of uh, yeah, of, that's like when uh, sororities started. Yeah, the second wave of uh, the women's rights movement mm-hmm. in the U.S. Um, and circus was matching that interestingly mm. at the same time. But then when women got the right to vote, they sort of, got suppressed back in circus. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it comes it comes in interesting interesting ways. ways. But I would agree with you, particularly like in sort of the more recent. Uh, more recent contemporary circus. Part of the challenge is that like women are flyers and the men are so strong in circus. Exactly. That it's quite a challenge to break gender norms because you sort of need to have gender norms in order to have a have a tiny girl be thrown Mm. by a massive dude. Exactly. There's a physiological reason for the way that things are laid out in certain ways. Um, My girlfriend works in a company called Gravity and Other Myths and they discuss this all the time because there's six boys and two girls and the girls are always being thrown around and they always talk about the gender balance of it and things like that and with Mm -hmm. club swizzle we've had a lot of discussions about it too having four boys as kind of the the throw line through the whole show and then Lori comes and does the striptease exactly yeah yeah but it's in such a intelligent way and so well done that it kind of makes sense and works yeah it's oh i I think one of my like other than your finale dancing. <laughs> I, Which is amazing. <laughs> you, should just, you should just come that's, to the show that's to see. That's worth the ticket price. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but when the, when the girls catch you, it's like, oh, wow. Like, the only catching in the show is done, done by, by girls. all the girls. Yeah. Or the only fire. Yeah. And every time yes. I'm like, okay, catch him, catch him, catch him. But, and then at one point, when they bring you back to the pole, and they basically... Put both your legs on either side. Which started out originally was like a placeholder, yeah, which was like a yeah, it was like a we don't have time to finish that today. We're just gonna do that in the show tonight. We'll find something else. And now yeah. it's just then I got a laugh that night because I kind of just like so smashed awkward. my legs open between the pole and I'm like oh Here I guess go. that's in the show. I guess now. we're keeping that. Yeah. It's, but Olga's face when she does it too is like just such excitement. She's like. <laughs> 
and then they go to the, you, they bring you to the pole, and every every night the audience is like, ooh, aha. Because, like, ooh, did that hurt? I know, I feel like maybe we should change that, but oh well. Yeah. Well, we'll see, um, we'll see when it goes to Australia, which is the next place it's going. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I think we'll wrap up with sort of the, the typical questions that we, we tend to ask. Yeah. Um, and uh, we, we often start by asking, are there any books or shows or movies that have really impacted you that you would recommend to somebody who's getting into circus or trying to learn about it? Mm. Let's see. Shows that I've really enjoyed over the years. I've really enjoyed things that are thoughtfully made things. I mean, that's kind of goes without saying, but shows that have had a lot of, I really like Daniele Finzi Pasca's work, whether it would be like with El Waz, Cirque El Waz from Montreal back in the day, or his more recent Cirque du Soleil shows, or his more, much more recent company of his own. Um, They're, they're not necessarily the kind of work that I want to make, but they're really great to watch. There's a guy named David Erickson, who's a Swedish performer who worked with La Soiree a lot and recently made his own show. And it's about... Clown? Yeah, he's a clown and juggler. Yeah. And it's called Pink on the Inside. It's his show. Mm-hmm. I worked. I helped him do the kind of tech side of it last yeah. year in Australia. And it's he just... at the Edinburgh Fringe recently? He didn't do it in Edinburgh. He did it in Perth. In Perth, okay. Last year. Yeah. And it's just the most spectacular show it's just him on stage the whole time and it's kind of this story of how he growing up in a world where boys are told to be boys and told to like to be aggressive and like to be this and it's this whole story of him finding his feminine side kind of thing and it's this like incredible show he takes you to all these different places that you're not expecting to go to in this kind of juggling talking show awesome yeah it's great i really it's the kind of work that i'd love to make that's kind of you're not expecting it to take you where it does Mm -hmm. it kind of takes you there on a subtle journey instead of pushing the ideas that it's right got into your face sounds great um it's really great have there been any piece of advice you've gotten over the course of your life that's like really stuck with you and that you you know you yeah, it's not necessarily advice that I've taken, but it's advice that I've heard someone say and questioned more than anything else. Right. Someone telling me when a period when I wasn't, I was going traveling. I went traveling for three months by myself two years ago. And someone, when I was about to go, told me like, you shouldn't do that. You should really be working all the time. Like you can only work for so long in this industry. You should work all the time. And I'd it was definitely advice that stuck with me, though not advice that I wanted, that I took or right. thought was reasonable. I was like, I don't think, but I think we have different goals about this. Like, I want to live and perform and experience things and not just experience the backstage of theaters around the world. And really was like, you know what? I understand that you say that, but I'm going to make my own path through the world kind of thing. Yeah, it's funny how other people's advice can clarify even when you disagree with it. Like Absolutely. Because yeah. like, I, I get why you're telling me that, but it's now illuminated like my own personal values. Absolutely. The other thing that I would say would be like the idea, not sure, I think it's a famous quote kind of thing. I don't know where I heard it particularly, but the idea of saying no, the 
the quality, the the choices of saying no are almost more important than the yeses out there in terms of like choosing work and choosing things you want to do. If you say yes to everything, you won't be available when the things you want to do come up or you won't have the time. If you're just saying yes to everything, you won't have the time to create the things that you want to make and taking time to say no, to be like, oh, that gig would be probably sweet, but then I won't have any chill time in my year kind of thing, or I won't have any time where I'm not overlapping gigs and working full on. So I think that's really an important thing that mm-hmm. people are very attached to the idea of booking their entire Same year is. and being very busy all the time where mm-hmm. I don't really feel that pressure. Yeah. Well, I, who did I hear say it this morning mm-hmm. on Facebook, but it's just, it's the anxiety of not having work. Oh, it's a dancer mm-hmm. who I moved into the box was talking about she's sort of trying to do like self-motivational things on Facebook every day the way Lisa mm-hmm. does yeah. them and she was saying like this week do something that uh, you know you you wouldn't normally do and she's like I'm, I want to spend more money on making myself happy because I'm just so my biggest advice is that I'm constantly worried that I won't have another gig yeah. so I don't spend my money even though I don't really have that much trouble booking booking gigs absolutely it's just yeah. because I don't have that certainty I treat my life differently but that's like everyone in the arts has this like lives with this constant uncertainty of what your next thing is definitely and it's definitely, not yeah. a comfortable place to be but it's also like yeah. you have to just embrace it or it'll drive you insane yeah it's definitely a very like nomadic and uncertain career choice like yeah. you don't most circus performers who are working a lot don't particularly have houses or like right. home base kind of thing yeah. or job security as much as you have job security as much as you're like contract says you do in the end like if the show fails or something like that happens right. you, you don't yeah. you don't like the contract can say what it will but if the company can't pay for it then so you don't actually have it it's my favorite circus yeah. saying that i heard from peter Bafano, who's a circus composer mm-hmm. but it's like super old school which is that there are only two lies in the circus which is you'll always have a job here and you'll never work here again. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's great. That is so true. So true. So true. When it comes to like choosing, choosing gigs, there's something that someone told me once. Actually, Frodo told me this. Frodo Santini, otherwise known as Captain Frodo, is a good friend of mine and always full of advice and had this phrase. He said, there's three gigs can have good money, good people, or a good project and they have to have two of those for you to do the gig Mm -hmm. they can either have good money and be a good project with bad people you don't enjoy working with or good people no money and a good project project. has to have at least two of those and it's a project you should be part of it so if it's good money good people sorry out of that is the is the good money or okay money and good other people like at least from what i've yeah definitely my work definitely yeah finding products that are exciting Although you've been on a few of them, I think is is probably the biggest challenge for. for Absolutely, it's really yeah. Finding some a gig that you're really excited by, yeah. Yeah. a show that you want to keep doing, is a tricky thing to do. So yeah. final final question of today's podcast episode. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what other guests do you think we should have on the podcast next? Oh, good question. Um. Well. Frodo is an incredible person who I think you should have on the podcast. Frodo and I have been working on a little podcast of our own that hopefully will be out soon. He is just a man full of ideas. You'll have to do a five hour long episode because he won't stop talking no matter what you do. Um, He's a very creative guy who's just full of ideas and full of conceptual theories of circus and such things possibly the best or one of the top two or three best variety acts absolutely a hilarious today. hilarious man on and off stage you cast yeah. him in rose revelry right yeah 
Another, yeah. another Rose, Rose Rabbit Liar. <laughs> Rose Rabbit Liar. <laughs> Who else? Who else would be someone you should have on the podcast? Well, we'll be in Australia, so we can do a few podcasts from Australia. Absolutely. Yeah, that'll be fun. Let's have whole, all of Josh and her whole company. You should have Gravity and Other Myths on. Yeah, you should totally. Yeah. The collaborative service. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Josh would be great to have on. She has all sorts of ideas of growing up in the Australian circus community and their whole idea of having festivals and all that. Mm -hmm. They like go to the whole circus community, travels to festivals, and they all, since they were like... 10 years old they like know everyone in the festival and then they go to the next festival and they're all at the same show festival it's, it's amazing yeah it's really something spectacular that we, we don't have we grew up in the wrong continent yeah we i think so wrong country too. it's all right i'm doing my best to migrate <laughs> <laughs> yeah you are your whole rest of your life is gonna be in australia yeah um, and i think we should have brett haylock on yeah but it would be fun yeah absolutely um, now you'll have to come to I'm sydney answering early. the question for you <laughs> yeah you'll have to come to sydney early now well, Jordan, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. My pleasure. Yes, so thanks, fun. Jordan. And that was the episode with Jordan Dawson. We hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, please go on iTunes, like us, rate us, share us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram for behind-the-scenes photos and videos of Slumber. Yes. And uh, email us at hello at hideawaycircus.com with your guest suggestions, comments, questions, and recommendations <laughs> for things to do in Australia. That's so much to do. But you can do it all. You have time. It's almost the weekend. Have a good weekend. Hip hip hooray. Bye.